I have this friend, Raphael Rajkumar. Everyone called him Raf. And we met in the fall of 2011. I had just moved to Kansas City from Pittsburgh, and he had just moved there from Tyron Valley, which is a city at the very southern tip of India. Neither of us had a lot of friends, and so we ended up hanging out quite a bit. And I was reminded this week of uh, one conversation we had about college. Nearly everyone I know traces the shape their faith takes today to experiences they had in InterVarsity or Crew. What was it like to be a Christian on campus in southern India? Raf explained that India is a place where you make decisions like who you marry or where you work or the God you worship in view of your family's reputation. Doing otherwise can bring disgrace. He described a phenomenon on his campus he called secret Christianity. And by that he meant that people will encounter Jesus and be drawn to him. But there is a period where they count the cost of making their faith public. And the cost can be quite significant, he explained. People will get kicked out of their houses, for example. And so you have all these people who, who love Jesus, who worship Jesus, who study the Bible, who serve the poor, who enjoy fellowship with one another, who do all the Christian stuff, but they're reticent to identify themselves as Christians. Now, our gospel text from Matthew is about the cost of discipleship. And it's been referred to as one of the hard sayings of Jesus. It's not hard to understand, but it's, it's hard to accept. It's hard to receive. It's hard to put into practice. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, Jesus says. Well, you might say, I don't even really like my parents. Fair enough. What about your kids? Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Well, not, not all of us have kids. Fine. Here's how Eugene Peterson puts verse 39. If you do not go all the way with me, Jesus says, through thick and thin, you don't deserve me. That hits everybody. And that's what I want to talk about today, following Jesus. Our passage tells us at least three things about what it means to walk alongside him through life. The first thing is that this call is universal. It's not optional. If you want Jesus to be part of your life, then you have to be willing to go all the way. Where am I getting this? Well, partly from the context. This is our third and final sermon in a section of Matthew's Gospel that scholars call the Missionary Discourse. It starts at the end of chapter 9, where Jesus tells his disciples to ask God to send laborers into the harvest. And at the beginning of chapter 10, uh, the Lord answers his own prayer, sending his disciples on a mission trip and giving them instructions before they go. And some of what he says is quite particular. 
For example, he tells his disciples to not go to any town of the Samaritans or associate with any Gentiles. Obviously, that is not particularly relevant to us. But as this speech continues, the scope expands. And the second person pronouns, you or or y'all, give way to words like whoever, anyone, everybody. In fact, I count 10 of those types of words in our passage alone. Jesus is still speaking to his disciples, but he's saying, what I'm telling you now, you need to tell everybody. Because my words apply to everyone at all time and in all places. And what does he say? He says, everyone who wants to deal with me has to take me seriously. There is no double standard. You know what I mean? Like, there are not two types of Christian faith. There are not two groups. One group, which is committed and all out, and another group that says something more like, well, I go to church, but, you know, I'm not one of those people. I have limits. Jesus Christ says, no. Anyone who wants their, my influence in their life has to take up a cross. Whoever is interested in engaging with me has to put me first. More important than your family, more important than your career, more important than what you deem to be good or true or beautiful. Jesus says, I am not in addition to those things. I am their foundation. So if you are interested in all the wonderful things that Jesus wants to bring into your life, then nothing is off limits. He gets access to everything. There is no other option. Now, You may very well have heard something like this before, but what I want to say here is that our Lord's directness is in fact a mercy. A strange mercy, but a mercy nevertheless. What do I mean? You know what one of the most annoying things in the world is? I'll tell you what one of the most annoying things in the world is. Hidden costs. Fine print. To use an example, surely relevant for many of us right now. Imagine you're looking for an Airbnb and you find the perfect spot and it's only $150 a night, reserve, right? Well, then you go to pay and you realize it's actually $220 a night because there are cleaning fees and occupancy fees and city taxes and state taxes, all of these hidden costs uh, in, in fine print. There is nothing more annoying than that Jesus does not do this. He does not look at one group and say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then turn to another group of insiders and say, oh, by the way, this is going to get really hard at some points. No, Jesus is upfront and he speaks as clear as day. Whoever wants to follow me needs to know that discipleship is not optional. That's the first thing. And the second thing this passage teaches us is that following Jesus is deeply emotional. Emotional? Emotional. 
How so? Well, just look at the range of relationships that Jesus describes. Love for our father and mother. That feels a certain way. Love for our sons and daughters. That feels a little different. And in a parallel passage in Luke 14, Jesus throws in our love for a husband or spouse and the love that we have for our brothers and sisters, which in that day would have included close friends. So you see what Jesus is doing. He's taking all the different kinds of love that we experience, the respect and admiration we feel for our parents, the passion we feel for our spouse, the gratitude we feel for our friends, the way that we treasure our children. And Jesus is saying, I love you in such a way that makes all those other kinds of love pale in comparison. And Jesus says, I want a similar kind of love from you, a love with an intensity and range that transcends those other loves like the sun outshines the stars. And this is the most important thing about what it means to follow Jesus. It's the one thing, he says, that really matters. Love. It's all about love. And that's reassuring, isn't it? Because it's possible to hear that first point about discipleship being not optional and think, oh my gosh, this sounds like the worst kind of boot camp imaginable. Who can do such a thing? And I want to say you can do such a thing if it's first and foremost about love. It's not that following Jesus does not involve discipline and self-control and willpower. Everything that's worthwhile involves discipline and self-control and worth and willpower. But that's not the main thing. The main thing is love. We don't love our children, our spouse, our closest friends by cheerlessly doing what they ask of us. No, we feel love for them. We treasure them. We delight in them. And so we honor and sacrifice for them out of this wellspring of affection. It's deeply emotional. And so this raises, I think, a pretty important question. Do you have a sense of that kind of love for Jesus? And do you have a sense of that kind of love from Jesus? Do you feel Jesus's delight in you? In your prayer life, do you sense his embrace, his affection? Do you perceive right now, amidst all the struggles and confusion of the year 2020, do you feel Jesus's love and delight and care for you? Do you know that? And are you fixated on him in return? More than anything, that's what this Christian thing is all about. The writer Alan Jacobs tells a story about Ralph Waldo Emerson in a divinity school address he gave where he complained about a certain type of Christian who dwells with noxious exaggeration upon the person of Jesus. And Alan Jacob says, that's what I want written on my tombstone. I dwelt 
with noxious exaggeration upon the person of Jesus. Point one, following Jesus, we do it through thick and thin. There's no other way. Point two, it's emotional, it's passionate, it is fueled by love. Point three, how do we get there? How do we get that kind of passion? Especially if Jesus for us is is pretty abstract or conceptual, if it feels more like a worldview than a person. How? Well, I think Jesus tells us. We do so by walking in the shadow of the cross. One commentator highlights what Jesus doesn't say in this passage. He doesn't say, take up my teachings and follow me. He doesn't say, take up my character and follow me. And that's good because trying to do so would crush us. Jesus says, take up your cross. The cross? Well, this was the means by which condemned criminals were put to death. And I can imagine the disciples shaking their heads when they first heard Jesus' words. What does that mean? Well, they would soon find out what we now know. That, to quote the prayer book, God took an instrument of shameful death and made it for us the means of life. So taking up the cross, it's not simply girding ourselves for suffering or being willing to sacrifice. More than anything else, it means counting ourselves as people who have died and yet come back to life. And this is the teaching of the New Testament over and over and over again. When Jesus died, we died. When Jesus was buried, we were buried. And when Jesus was resurrected, it was a sign that not only will we be resurrected, but that we are even now enjoying newness of life. Paul speaks to this directly in our reading from Romans 6, and he puts it slightly differently in Colossians 3. He says there, set your mind on things above, for you died. You died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Hidden meaning it's secure, it's safe. God is watching over it. God is protecting it. And no one can touch it. No one can take from you the life that God has given you. Try as they might. As a follower of Jesus, you have a life, a fullness, that not a single person, event, or experience can jeopardize. And when you speak, God listens. When you move, God sees. And when God looks at you, he doesn't just see the inconsistencies and imperfections. He doesn't just see all the striving and the struggles. God looks at you through a prism of perfection. God sees all of the creative and and beautiful qualities that he designed for you when he created you. The theologian uh, Ikemeni Uwan recently wrote an article in The Atlantic about how to keep faith 
during the pandemic. Here's what she said. My Christian faith teaches me that I am not what I produce. I am valuable because I am a human being endowed by God with intrinsic dignity and worth. And I have found solace in that truth. My faith teaches me that my value is not contingent on my circumstances. Radical acceptance, which is what the article is about, is a complementary concept. It teaches me to release what I cannot control so that I can focus on what I can change. Radical acceptance. That is a kind of emotional wealth that we can all enjoy. And that is what empowers us to follow Jesus without reserve or abandon. We know what we look like to our Lord, and we can enjoy an inexhaustible freedom because of our identification with Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. That's what it means to take up your cross. Discipleship is not instantaneous. We are always working towards integrating more and more of the truth of the gospel into our life. I don't want to paint too simplistic of a picture, but I do want to say that the freedom that God has given us through the life that he safeguards for us in Christ gives us this a freedom to live uninhibited. It gives us a freedom to fail. It gives us a freedom to not have to win. God guards our victory. God safeguards our fullness under his lock and key. And when you start to see yourself the way that God sees you, you are free from the straitjacket of what this world says you need in order to be happy. And I have personally found this such a helpful antidote to defensiveness and fragility. The love of Jesus gives me the freedom to accept painful truths about myself, to look at them straight in the eye, to not make excuses, to strip the varnish away, to name and repent of the things that I've done and even more, the things I have left undone. And I want to say this has a particular resonance for those of us in our cultural moment right now being asked to reckon with our built-in advantages. We don't need to be defensive. We can accept, and we can accept that diagnosis, and we can consider how we might use those advantages to help make the world a more just, humane, peaceable place. God guards our life. God keeps our fullness under his lock and key. Everything else that gets in our way or that hinders other people can be stripped away. Following Jesus, it's not optional. It's deeply emotional. And we walk alongside him and behind him 
in the shadow of his cross. It's our identification with Jesus that makes the whole journey possible. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.